0: Welcome to Fruit Loops. (laughs) Season two, episode two. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are white. Would you believe it? (laughs) There are many well documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because, well, the news is racist. Allegedly,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not mm-hmm. journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that: our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to Fruit Loops Pod at gmail dot com, or leave us a voicemail at six zero two. Nine three five six two nine four.
0: Yes, we love all of them, the emails and the voicemails, so keep them coming. So uh, who are we talking about today, Beth?
1: Today we're talking about Maury Travis, also known as the St. Louis Video Strangler. The mm. subject was suggested to us by Kelly in our Facebook discussion group.
0: Aw, thanks, Kelly.
1: Yeah. So
0: how are you, Beth? What's new?
1: Um, I don't have anything new going on. I'm doing okay. Um getting ready for Halloween and That's uh, right. voting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Actually mm-hmm. I already voted, so good. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Me
0: too. Everybody listening should do the same and encourage all of your yeah. friends to do.
1: <laughs> Early voting out- is so nice. So oh, nice. Oh my
0: God. I haven't been voting for too long, two thousand was my first election ever and Uh um I had never been to the polls until till the primaries it was awful it was a very awful experience um and And that's that's uh, how it
1: always was back in the day we you know I don't remember when they started implementing uh early voting but uh in the 2000s like mid 2000s. I don't really know. But anyway, okay. before that, we always had to go to the polls and it was always a big fat mess.
0: What a, a nightmare. Like yeah. the, the the volunteers, bless their hearts, but they didn't know how the machines worked. They weren't familiar with all the forms. Um, I went to one polling place and they told me it was the wrong one, even though on the internet told me that it was. So then I had to go to another right. one. It was just like, oh, yeah, why? it's awful. So I will never let, I and the and the reason I had to go to the um polls is because I'm registered independent and uh-huh. um my I didn't request that they mail a ballot to me and I didn't know that you had to oh. do that. I thought it
1: just comes in the
0: Mail and it didn't. So, um, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I was diligent. I was checking um, the Secretary of State website regularly. I called to make sure I was registered. Um, I called to make sure that my ballot would be mailed to me this time around. It was, and it was so nice. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, so nice. <laughs> yes, everybody. Go. Um. Me, uh, I am feeling very sad, scared, and depressed all at the same oh. time. I just saw the news and there was another hate crime at a synagogue. Uh, yeah, so that was terrible. Uh, It's just what is happening. But anyway, get to the polls, everybody. Um, And so while all this terrible shit is going on, I'm doing everything I can to consume as much funny, happy, uplifting, silly content um, so that I can keep from breaking down completely. (laughs) So... (laughs) One of the funniest things I found this week, there was a couple really funny uh, things on the internet. Uh, But I found a hotline for racists. Actually, the (laughs) actress (laughs) Nisi Nash from, we know her from TV shows such as Reno 911. She was the black cop. And uh, she's also the lead on the TV show Claws on FX. And she's so freaking funny. But she made a video (laughs) and posted it on the New York Times website. It's also on YouTube. But it advertises this hotline the phone number is one eight four four white fear and white is spelled w-y-t and then fear f-e-a-r and it's a real hotline that white people can call instead of calling the police on black or brown people nearby doing regular ass things um you know that might make a white person uncomfortable so i actually called the number and uh the video is hilarious but it's a real hotline so um like if you call it, uh, the, uh, the the prompt is like, if you're triggered by hearing Spanish language, then um, <laughs> why don't you just press one now and then it'll say, it, it's, just, it's just really funny. Um, anyway, if you're prone to racism, you should put this phone number in your phone. And if you know any racists, <laughs> you should share the video with them and the number with them. Um, and we will put it in our show notes. But have you seen it yet?
1: I haven't. I it, no, I showed
0: it to somebody. <laughs> I showed it to a couple of people at work, and they were like rolling on the floor laughing. It's really <laughs> funny. But I mean, it I'm going
1: to check that out.
0: Yes, please do. One eight four four White Fear. <laughs> so, uh, do we have any uh, listener letters?
1: <laughs> well, I uh, not a letter, uh, but per se. But uh, I wanted to give a big shout out to Carolyn, uh, who became uh, one of our patrons this week. Yay. And yeah. Carolyn, we hope you enjoy your Fruit Loops button. And don't That's forget, right. everyone, if you donate a dollar or more, either by becoming a Podbean patron or by donating through the Cash App, you'll get a Fruit Loops button too. And something Carolyn said, um, I emailed her to thank her and, uh, she wanted me to tell you that uh, she played the pass-out game when she was a kid, but (laughs) she could not uh, hold her breath long enough to pass out. (laughs) And then um, she she also said that uh, she had a hard time finding the link for the uh, patron page. So I... Made it a little clearer on the website so you can find it easier. And that was really oh, helpful awesome. information. So, yeah, awesome. if any of you guys have any suggestions like that, please let us know. Because it's hard for us to tell. Yeah because um, it's easy for me to find. <laughs> I know where I know it is. Exactly I I
0: check it every day. <laughs> well, Carolyn, my heroine, thank you so much.
1: <laughs> and then I also wanted to give a big shout out to Countess in Canada, who left us a voicemail. Hi, Wendy and Beth. Uh, this is Countess. I'm in Canada. I got your podcast. I've been listening to it for a while. I think they're fabulous. (laughs) So keep up the good work, and uh, I enjoy listening. Thanks. Have a nice day. Bye, guys.
0: Thanks, Countess.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So uh, tell me about any other listener letters, Wendy.
0: Well, let me tell you, I found a nice iTunes review, um, and uh, it is titled A Real Must Listen, Uh, and they gave us five stars, so thank you for the five stars. Um, Nice. Yes, the reviewer went on to say, Wendy and Beth are not afraid to talk about sensitive topics, and they bring their own personalities to the podcast. I love that they shine a light on both killers and victims that don't, Uh, often get the spotlight when talking about true crime amen they may be may not be journalists but they are well researched and i love their sidebars when they explain the language and terminology that they use thank you so much for the review yeah (laughs) that's a great review thank you thank you and it really helps the show so if you are compelled um to help us um please go to itunes um We'd love it if you gave us five stars and review the show. Thank you. Um, So now let's move along. Uh, Do we have any serial killer crime news?
1: Yeah. I wanted to uh, talk about a story that was posted by Stephanie in our discussion group. Uh, It's a pretty crazy story. Mm -hmm. A couple was arrested in Mexico While pushing a baby stroller filled with human body parts. Excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) And they may have killed up to twenty women. Oh Lord! Uh, The article says that the man and woman were detained in uh, Mexico City suburb on suspicion of murdering ten female victims. Uh, the article was published on October 9th, mm-hmm. um, and the arrest was probably around October 4th. Anyway, uh, police arrested the couple, and they are identified only as Juan Carlos N. and his wife Patricia N. Okay. During the, an investigation into the disappearance of three women and a two-month-old baby, The man allegedly gave detailed accounts of the original 10 deaths and claimed that he and his wife had killed a further 10 people and that they had sold the missing baby. (gasps) According to, yeah, according to the prosecutor in the case, eight plastic buckets full of dismembered body parts and cement were found in the couple's house. And more remains were found in a refrigerator wrapped in plastic bags. Stop it! The couple, oh my God. <laughs> the couple who get this, live with their three children. No, were arrested <laughs> while pushing the baby carriage through the suburb. And, you know, oh filled God. with body parts. Oh my God! And the police had expected to find the missing baby inside, but instead found human remains.
0: Oh my Lord! Is that nuts. No, that's <laughs> wild. Oh my God! Yeah, that's thank you nuts. For
1: the story with us,
0: and one of our listeners yeah. recommended that one. Wow! Thank you, yes, Stephanie. Yeah. Oh, Stephanie, that's a that's a good one. I I can't possibly top that with anything right now (laughs) so uh i guess we will just take a little break (laughs) so we would like to invite any listeners who have a business to advertise to do it with us for more information please email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com or check out our website at
1: fruitloopspod.com yeah, and I made a tab uh, to make it easy to find. So oh. you should be able to e- find that pretty easily when you go to the website. So
0: awesome! Okay, thank you, Super Beth. <laughs> so, uh, why don't you tell us what we will be talking about?
1: Today we're talking about Maury Travis, also known as the St. Louis Video Strangler, an American serial killer who tortured and murdered women while videotaping it. Oh my. Uh, this is part one, and we'll be covering the second half of the story next week.
0: Awesome. So let's get into some stats. <laughs> <laughs> my so these crimes took place in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, anybody ever heard of it? Michael Brown recently was yeah. killed by police. <laughs> there, anyway. Um, uh, Maury Travis had 12 to 17 victims. His murders took place between 2000 and 2002. He was arrested on June 7th in 2002. Um, his method of murder was strangulation the uh, victim profile his victims consisted mostly of female sex workers of color also um, often struggling with addiction and his MO was he would pick them up he lured them to his basement tortured them with like a stun gun he beat them verbally abused them raped them and videotaped the entire thing and then he dumped the bodies So sounds
1: like a great guy
0: he does. He does. <laughs> Give this guy a key to the scene. Uh, so uh, now we're going to get into his early life. So Maury Troy Travis was born in St. Louis, Missouri, on October 25th, 1965. He was born during the Civil Rights Movement. I
1: have to say that's that's also uh, the year I was born. Hey!
0: Hey, were your parents activists?
1: Um. Not activists. Mm. They they supported, of course, supported civil rights, but Mm -hmm. um they weren't activists, no. They were older, I think I mentioned
0: yeah, yeah, you have mentioned that.
1: I remember them complaining that like during the sixties when the hippies and everybody was they were all active. Um one of the mottos was like if you're older than thirty you can't be trusted. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> Whoa, yeah, yeah. It was. It, they they just did not trust people of the older Certainly. people, people of different generations. Yeah. Mm. So I don't know if that was part of why they didn't, they weren't active, but they just weren't. <laughs> they supported Absolutely. civil rights, though. That was none of my beats. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> Um, (laughs) uh,
0: well well, I think it's interesting because so my my dad is an african-american so he was you know very aware of the black panthers um I don't know if he participated in marches but but that was top of mind for my black american family now my mom still lived in central america at this time I don't even think like I remember I came home to do a like a we talked about martin luther king and I was like I went home and asked my mom, "Hey, uh, like, where were you? You know, when when Martin Luther King was killed?" And she was like, "That wasn't a thing for us in Central America. He wasn't." Yeah, she was in he Central
1: America. Yeah.
0: He, he was not our guy. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the son of Sandra and Michael Travis, uh, they lived in the Carr Square Public Housing. Complex just north of downtown St. Louis, Travis attended St. Louis Public Schools from 1971 to 1975.
1: The family moved from Ferguson or moved to Ferguson in 1976 then in 1978 his parents divorced. A neighbor in Ferguson described Maury Travis as a quiet, respectful boy who sometimes mowed her lawn without being asked and showed her how to use an electric hedge trimmer. She knew him by his nickname, Toby, and said he was a pleasant child with a soft heart. Other longtime neighbors said they have virtually no re- recollection of him.
0: Sue Hanan, a retired English teacher at Travis's high school, remembers him as a student in her basic English class, a class for students who failed an earlier English course. She described him as very quiet and withdrawn, incredibly quiet for a teenager. Even the quiet ones can be noisy sometimes, she said, but not him.
1: Travis graduated from high school in 1985, which, as I said, I was born in 1965. I graduated in 83. Okay. He was born in October, so that would give him... uh, I was born in March, so Mm -hmm. that would give him an extra year. So, So I think he probably should have graduated in 84, Ah. um, but it sounds like maybe he was held back a year. Yeah, it does sound like that. So anyway, he graduated in 85 and Mm -hmm. after school he served two years in the Army Reserve working as a dental and medical assistant and later worked with various trucking companies and volunteered at a local nursing home. In oh. 1987, he attended Morris Brown College, a private college in Atlanta.
0: Now I wanted to talk about this a little bit because uh Morris Brown is an HBC, y'all. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that is a historically black college. So <clears throat> Welcome to Culture Corner with Beth and Wendy. In the United States, (laughs) when slavery ended, Black people were not allowed to attend PWIs. That's short for predominantly white institutions. Um, Newsflash, those schools are still quite segregated. Anyway, now white kids um, can and do go to HBCs. So... Beth, you could go there and get a minority scholarship. Um, Wow. Yeah, they (laughs) welcome anyone, but were designed for Black people who were systematically and legally excluded from getting a higher education. Now, I actually got a full ride scholarship to to one. And I spent a summer there before um, I was sort of expecting to go there. And I changed my mind. It was a totally dumb decision, but it was an incredible experience because it was finally a place where I wasn't the quote unquote black girl. Everybody there, we were all smart. Everybody was talented, all black students. And so we didn't have to worry about being othered and got the opportunity to just be ourselves in this higher learning place. Plus there's like a ton of history um, about HBCs. I won't get into all of it, but statistically kids who go to HBCs, um, they have more confidence. Um, they speak up more in meetings with other white people um, and they're they're more successful throughout their lives. Um, But I didn't take the full ride, and now I'm up to my eyeballs in debt and extremely insecure. Anyway.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But you're doing a podcast.
0: (laughs) But I'm doing a podcast, so life's great.
1: (laughs) So it's great, yeah.
0: Uh, Where did this take place? Oh, by the way, I wanted to preface all of this by um, we want to really paint the picture of um, the time and the place, because I think it it is important when we're painting the picture about Mr. Travis. So... um, If you're not interested in uh, hearing any of this part, even though it's important, um, you can fast forward a little bit. But anyway, I just felt like I had to say that. Sorry. Yeah, we're
1: going to take a deep dive into St. Louis and go way back in the history. And So yeah, if you're not interested, fast forward. Yes, but if you are, buckle up.
0: Hold on your butts. (laughs) Yeah,
1: because it's pretty interesting. It is
0: very (laughs) fascinating. So.
1: Okay, so yeah, like I said, uh, this takes place in St. Louis, Missouri, which is located along the Mississippi River on the border of Illinois. Race relations in St. Louis during slavery were complex because the city was located in a border state that permitted slavery. St. Louis was also a major slave auctioning center. During the 1850s. Interesting.
0: In rural areas, most Black enslaved people lived in plantation or farm sh- settings, having little or no contact with free Blacks. But Southern cities differed. Businesses or individuals could rent enslaved people with specific skills such as printing, blacksmithing, horse care or carpentry. And I wanted to jump in and say it's better to use the term enslaved than to call them slaves, because slaves sort of implies um, that uh, it it leaves out the fact that they didn't choose they didn't choose this part. so their people aren't slaves, they are enslaved. It's just a better it's just a better way to describe them.
1: Good to know so and I also I did not know that people rented enslaved people I, didn't I, I either had no clue, but mm-hmm. I guess that was pretty common in the cities. Mm, so yeah most of the time what we hear about is uh on plantations
0: yeah but i guess you could so yeah did not know did not know thank goodness for this show
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) regular contact with both north and south meant that free blacks and enslaved blacks walked the same streets met the same people and interacted with one another This uh, mingling of enslaved people and free people heightened the issue of slavery and its abolition.
0: Although free was a relative term, free African-Americans in antebellum St. Louis needed licenses to live in the city. What? While a black aristocracy. That's crazy. While a black aristocracy. "Quote unquote, of merchants and professionals existed there by the late 1850s, their lives were far more restrictive than whites. Blacks were subject to housing restrictions, curfews, bans on education, and
1: prohibition from testifying in
0: court against whites. Great.
1: Ugh, yeah. In the 1850s, about one person in 20 living in St. Louis was African-American, two-thirds of whom were enslaved. The end of Reconstruction in 1877 and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the South compelled Southern Blacks to migrate north to cities such as St. Louis. Most Famous were the Exodusters of 1879, Mm -hmm. so named for their exodus to what many of them thought was a sort of promised land. Quote, unquote.
0: (laughs) I heard an interesting um, take on North versus South for Black people. So in the South, a Black person couldn't go into a bar to get a drink. But in the North, a Black person could go go to the bar, sit at the bar, get a drink, but then after he finished it, the bartender would shatter it, implying that he was not oh, welcome God. to have any more. So it's just a metaphor, um, but I thought it was yeah. quite um, striking. Um, yeah, Reconstruct in, um, as Beth mentioned in her her, in her last statement, isn't talked about very much. Um, Reconstruction took place from 1965 to 1877, just after slavery ended. And the government took steps to mandate racial equality. Um, and most people have this wild ass uh, inaccurate idea that blacks were given all these positions in the government and they just didn't do a good job. And that's why they lost their positions. No, that is false. There were in fact very effective Black judges, Black mayors, and even representation in the U.S. and House Senate after after Reconstruction. Um, But white people were like, oh, hell nah. And um, some states... I'm looking at you, Oregon, uh, created legislation to prevent blacks who were migrating from the South. And the KKK just grew stronger and stronger. And the federal government just could no longer control this white lash and white violence um, that was just mounting. So the president at the time pulled um, the, 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 the U.S. troops, I think it was the National Guard, um, who were in place at the time to curb violence and intimidation after about 10 years of Reconstruction. Um, and then Jim Crow laws were put on the books. And here we are, two, eight, 2018.
1: <laughs> so yeah, kind of
0: reminds me a lot about where we are today. We had a Black president. And like, racist white america lost its fucking mind and is still losing its mind so anyway yeah sleep tight yeah (laughs) that's
1: true i never really thought about that but yeah this is all happening again yeah
0: yeah
1: yeah so So, yeah and uh many blacks feared uh the, the reconstruction and the absence of u.s troops would eliminate their rights or worse yet return them to slavery. Mm. The KKK gave added impetus to fear for safety and life. Understandably. So mm-hmm. by 1880, the city's black population uh, increased to 6.36% of the total. Many of whom were migrants fleeing the South.
0: Yes. Uh, the it, it, It's been called the Great Migration. Um, Immigration to St. Louis increased again in the 1910s. Southern rural Blacks were attracted to many growing industrial centers by the lure of factory jobs. And the same was true during um, World War II. Attracted by wartime production jobs, such as those in the local small arms plant, the Black population increased 41% during the war.
1: Segregated housing patterns were not coincidence or happenstance. Mm -hmm. Who lived where reflected social attitudes about race. African-Americans lived in separate areas, even more accentuated than those of other recent urban arrivals like uh, Irish, German, Polish, or Italian neighborhoods.
0: Yeah. That's something that, um, that like uh, racist whites like to, like to throw at, Black people, sometimes they're like, well, the Irish had it just as bad. <laughs> I'm like, no, they didn't. Yeah, no, they did it. Anyway, yeah. uh, when, when a black family moved into a neighborhood, um, the whites were approached and told, hey, those blacks just moved in. In only a ma- it'll. it's only a matter of time before more come and the value of your home goes down. So the white family would sell the house at market value and get the hell out. And then a black person interested in buying in that neighborhood because, hey, it hey, looks like it's okay for black people to live here, were sold that same house at an extremely high price and rate.
1: Oh, brother. Mm-hmm. Euro-American groups like the Irish, German, Polish, or Italians could eventually blend into larger society. African-American skin color always identified them as different from the prevailing white culture, making it easier to force them into separate areas. Those areas tended to be similar to other tenement areas. Substandard housing, overcrowding, and unsanitary. Now, that
0: is not to say that all Black neighborhoods were slums. No, sir. Before the Civil War, uh, St. Louis boasted a Black aristocracy that we mentioned before of middle-class African Americans. Eventually, the Ville, (laughs) have you ever heard uh, (laughs) uh, the, the rapper Nelly? he talks about the Ville, stood as uh, the neighborhood for middle-class Black families. Yes, there is also a famous place. I wanted to bring this up because there were, um, after um, Reconstruction, little... Black communities, just all Black towns popping up then. And many of them th- were thriving. And there's one famous one in Oklahoma known as uh, Black Wall Street. Um, and it was so wealthy that one of the residents even had his own airplane. Wow. Um, but it really, really made the KKK mad. So they just bobbed the shit out of it. And um, oh, the community Jesus. was destroyed and many were killed. But um, there's plenty wow. of history available on that and if you're curious about black wall street look it up in
1: 1916 by a, a three to one margin voters enacted a segregation ordinance holding that no one could move to a block on which more than 75 percent of the residents were of another race wow. the naacp successfully fought the order in the courts Ooh, but good. white separatists responded By creating associations of white residents living in neighborhoods near black residential areas to solidify segregated housing. Oh, man.
0: Just one. Just one. I know. Yay, we win. Oh, we lose again. No. In 1954, St. Louis voters passed a bond issue to redevelop Milk Creek Valley, an African American district where more than 20,000 people lived, and was at one time the home to such famous African Americans such as Scott Joplin and Josephine Baker. Wow.
1: Yeah. Uh, Mill Creek Valley housed over 800 businesses and institutions. Everything the residents needed, from grocery, clothing, and hardware stores to restaurants, schools, and churches, was within walking distance of their homes. The area was also home to the prominent African-American newspaper, the St. Louis Argus. Hmm. Demolition of the
0: area began in 1959. Clearance would involve the relocation of many residents and businesses. Most residents would never return and many businesses would cease operations. Redevelopment included new residential, commercial, and industrial zones with the majority of land going towards new industry. Construction of new expressways cut through the area. Nearly 40 churches were raised in the process.
1: Uh. Hmm. That's to weird. accommodate the poorest displaced residents, the St. Louis Housing Authority continued to construct public housing on the north side, a decision reinforcing the racial segregation of the city. When the Land Clearance and Redevelopment Authority started demolishing blocks of Mill Creek Valley with bond issue money, the NAACP called it a Negro Removal Project. Mm, Got to call them as we see them. Yeah. (laughs) The net result displaced thousands, reinforced the North-South Division, and dealt a final death blow to a center of African-American culture. It's a damn shame.
0: Now, in the 1970s... Cocaine was a club drug glamorized by celebrities in Hollywood and the clubs of New York city and used primarily by whites, but a huge glut of cocaine powder being shipped into the U S caused the price of the drug to drop as much as 80%. Oh my.
1: (laughs) What do we do? (laughs) Uh, Faced with dropping prices, drug dealers converted the powder to crack. A solid form of cocaine that could be smoked. And while I was researching this, I learned that the reason why it's called crack is because it makes a cracking noise when you smoke it. Oh, so Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't even know that. Thank you! Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I always thought it was crack because the the rocks... Uh, oh, i don't know yeah like a lot- you, you like you crack it up or something yeah. but yeah, yeah it's the noise that it makes so uh broken into small chunks or rocks this form of cocaine could be sold in smaller quantities to more people at bigger profit it was cheap simple to produce easy to use and highly profitable
0: America responded with hysterical panic and racially driven fears of (laughs) gangs and violence and insistence (laughs) on law and order crackdowns. Uh, The federal government issued a discriminatory 100 to 1 decree for the possession or trafficking of crack versus the penalties for trafficking of powder cocaine. Possession of, get this, hold on to your wigs. Five grams of crack cocaine would mandate the same minimum sentence as five hundred grams of powder cocaine. Jesus. Yes. In nineteen, 19- yeah, it's super ridiculous. In nineteen ninety six, approximately sixty percent of inmates incarcerated in the U.S. were sentenced on drug charges. So, way to go, America.
1: Yeah, and data from the National Institute on Drug Abuse uh, shows that people reporting cocaine use in 1991 were 75% white, 15% black, and 10% Hispanic. People who admitted to using crack were 52% white, 38% black, and 10% Hispanic. Compare that... To U.S. Sentencing Commission data, which showed seventy-five percent of crack offenders were black, ten percent Hispanic, and only ten percent white. So the people arrested and you know sent to jail for using crack, like almost eighty percent were black. Uh, The only the only people who are uh, uh, seem to be. represented reasonably are the hispanic (laughs) yeah
0: yeah what is up with those numbers yeah
1: that's crazy Uh, okay so of course this lends credence to the contention that mandatory sentencing laws were racially biased and fundamentally flawed yeah
0: anybody who doesn't think so should have a seat. and Read some
1: statistics. Yeah. Take several seats.
0: <laughs> several <laughs> seats. Uh, the war on drugs resulted in an immense growth in court caseloads and prison populations. What y'all think was going to happen? What you thought? It focused yeah. on small-time <laughs> drug dealers, Jesus, who were generally poor young black males from the inner city. One in every four African American males aged twenty to twenty-nine was either inc- incarcerated or on probation or parole in 1989, and by 1985, That's 1990, insane. insane. So, uh, people, you know, I hate to like keep doing my sidebars, but I feel like they're important. Uh, this is what people mean when they say slavery didn't end; it just evolved into the war on drugs. Right. Um, an increase in prison populations. By by 1995, that statistic had increased to nearly one in three. So Jesus. imagine what that what havoc that would have on a an entire community.
1: On a a family, yeah, mm-hmm. families and communities, yeah. Thirty mm-hmm. percent of the men are in jail. Yep. That's just insane.
0: In- yeah. insane, yeah. So.
1: So this all resulted in the United States having the dubious distinction of the highest incarceration rate per capita of any industrialized nation and countless stories of broken homes and destroyed communities, which only continue the cycle of hopelessness, poverty and desperation that caused people to turn to selling drugs or using drugs in the first place.
0: Right. Right. So
1: not solving so, anything.
0: Nope. <laughs> I think
1: the problem is <laughs> continually getting worse. Continuing and getting worse. Okay. Yes.
0: So uh, families were torn apart. Lives were cut short. And a wealth of potential was lost on a generation of African-American youths. Um, but no one seemed to care about those urban crackheads. Unlike, oh boy, the heroin addicts creating today's opioid epidemic, which has had a disproportionate impact on white suburbanites and rural areas, black crack addicts were considered dispensable. To many politicians, they simply belonged in jail. let's uh now i'm back into it let's get into the timeline bet
1: <laughs> okay so uh one of the black men affected by the crack epidemic was maury travis in march of 1988 while he was home from college on spring break He held up five shoe stores in St. Louis County for the cash he needed to feed his $300 a day cocaine habit. Woo!
0: Now, when I was on spring break, I was just showing everybody my boobs.
1: (laughs) I I just was was getting getting really drunk. (laughs) I was just getting drunk and showing people my boobs in my butt. This, This was not on my list. Yeah, not 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 on my radar,
0: no. <laughs> so uh he pleaded guilty to the five robberies in January nineteen eighty nine and asked the judge for leniency since he had completed drug rehab and he had only used a toy gun in the holdups. He told the judge he was so strung out that he barely remembered the robberies.
1: And US Representative William L. Clay, he had written a letter to the judge asking for leniency for travis i have known mr travis and his family for a number of years and i feel he is deserving of special consideration in this matter clay wrote Mm -hmm. since january 1988 mr travis has conducted himself in such a manner as to pose no threat to society i am pleading that he be given leniency and probation with the condition of voluntary service at a charitable community agency. And when contacted later, Clay says he does not remember Travis or his family. Um, And during his congressional career, he said he sent thousands of similar letters. And I don't know how true that is because, Mm -hmm. you know, it'd be pretty embarrassing for him uh, later to be called out on that letter. So I don't know. One would think it would be embarrassing,
0: maybe even career ending, but mm-hmm. I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, on, but on July 5th, 1989, the judge sentenced Travis to 15 years in prison. He was four months from his 24th birthday. Within months, he wrote to the judge begging him to reduce his sentence because the ho- because of the horrible conditions in prison.
1: He wrote, uh, daily and hourly, also at any given moment, I think of taking my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, The conditions here are excruciatingly tormenting, to say the least. Staying in my cell and crying myself to sleep most every night will not help but it's so very hard to believe this has happened to me.
0: The whole situation, he goes on to say further, the whole situation is horrid and phantasmic. If it weren't for such a caring cellmate, I'm very sure I'd have committed suicide after my first day here in this institution. The letter complains of homosexual rapes, cramped living conditions, poor food, and a proliferation of drugs. There is no specific claim, however,
1: that he was raped. Yeah, but it's not... uh outside of the realm of possibilities.
0: No. And even, I mean, even if he wasn't subject to rape, I mean, it's not, uh, it's not crazy to believe that maybe he was, um, you know, in fights or experienced physical violence, you know? So.
1: Yeah. And just the fear. Yeah. Knowing that, uh, there were rapes going on, Mm -hmm. uh, just the fear would be pretty horrible. Yeah. So anyway, uh, He asked the judge for his sentence to be replaced by a 120 or 180 day shock imprisonment, which Mm. uh, apparently was a thing back then. Mm. You, sir, are my last hope, he wrote. Please give me another chance in society, please. But there's no indication that the letter had any impact on his sentence. Later on, Travis was paroled on June 14, 1994, after serving five years, most
0: of which he worked in the food and sanitation section of the prison.
1: And in the years that followed, between two more prison stints on drug-related charges, Travis worked several restaurant jobs. During the summers of 2000 and 2001, he was a waiter at the restaurant at the Mayfair Hotel downtown.
0: Mm, sounds fancy. July 31st, 2000, the body of Mary Shields, age 61, was found in East St. Louis. Uh, Her new decomposing body was found near a vacant building.
1: Then on November 29th, 2000, uh, Travis returned to prison a second time for violating parole, again for drug possession. And on March 19th, 2001, he was released from prison again.
0: And not much long after, April 1st, 2001, the body of Aly- Alyssa Greenwade, age 34, was found in Washington Park. Um, Alyssa Greenwade's death was mentioned only briefly in a local newspaper because the news is racist, allegedly. <laughs> and she was found in a ditch partially clothed.
1: Alyssa lived with uh, Reverend Anuka Manguzi who Mm -hmm. opened her door to women with addictions whose families had given up on them. Alyssa called her mom. She was addicted to crack cocaine. Alyssa was not the reverend. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she had turned to sex work, to fund her addiction.
0: Um, The night before her body was found, Alyssa called the Reverend to tell her about her new friend, Travis. And then Travis got on the phone and he didn't reveal his name to her, um, but got on the phone and told the Reverend, don't worry about Greenway because he was going to take care of her that night.
1: But less than nine hours after that call, Greenway was found dead. She'd been strangled and there were ligature marks on her wrists and ankles. A tire impression was found near her body in the earth, uh, which was identified as a Bridgestone Potenza tire.
0: April 4th, 2001, a woman, 44, was found near death in East St. Louis, but was paralyzed and brain dead due to
1: asphyxiation. So she was not able to help them. No. Um, And on May 15th, 2001, the body of Teresa Wilson, 36, was found in West Alton. Teresa Wilson was a sex worker. She grew up in St. Louis and was left alone by her parents. Um not sure what that means. Do you?
0: Um I think I I I thought that it meant that um, she was just had to fend for herself. Um so she that was that her able parents to get weren't really
1: taking care of her. Yeah,
0: her parents weren't around. Maybe they were on crack too. I don't know um yeah when they were possible yeah um but she didn't have her parents uh uh, watching her very closely so she got into trouble yeah
1: yeah she got into trouble um she didn't do drugs in high school but she did get pregnant at 17 and dropped out of high school to care for her daughter chastity
0: Wilson started to use crack cocaine and turned to sex work to support her habit. She was arrested many times for sex work, drugs or theft. Chastity was put into a group home at age 10. That's really sad. Wilson would go missing for weeks at a time for numerous reasons, including drugs. So when she went missing, no one thought it was a big deal.
1: And her body was found naked by the roadside and there were ligature marks on her neck. She was only able to be identified using a dental plate.
0: On May 23rd, 2001, the body of Betty James, she was 46, was found in St. Louis. Betty had a history of drug abuse and was a sex worker, and she had um, children, uh, but I don't know how many
1: Yeah. Her body was found with ligature marks on her neck and a sticky residue on her wrists and across her mouth and face, indicating that she'd been bound and gagged, probably with something like duct tape. Mm -hmm. A tire tread impression was left on her leg after apparently a car had run over it. It was identified as a Goodrich Advantage tire. And the investigators assumed that it was the killer who ran her over because probably if you're driving down the street and you ran over a body, you would probably call the police. So, yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, but the public was largely unaware of the killings. The stories about the bodies were short and buried inside of the newspapers. And I wonder why that is. It
0: starts with an R and ends with an (laughs) ace-ism. June 29th, 2001, the body of Verona Thompson, she was 36. Her body was found in West Alton, just 19 feet from where Teresa Wilson had been found before. According to her family, Verona, or Ronnie, as her friends and family called her, was not a sex worker, but she was a drug addict. And she had two daughters and worked as a cashier. Um, She would go out on the streets to score drugs and oftentimes her daughter, Tanyelle, would go with her um, to try and keep her safe.
1: Tanyelle and I think she was around 10 at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, She'd heard. uh, Yeah, she was pretty young. Uh, She'd heard stories of the women's bodies being found, and she begged her mom to get clean and to not go out on the streets anymore. Mm -hmm. And Ronnie agreed. Uh, She went into detox and came home clean and sober.
0: Awesome. But
1: on her birthday, she told Danielle that she was going to go across the street to a convenience store to get some potato chips, and uh, she never came back. Her body was found a week later.
0: It's really sad. On August 25th, 2001, the body of Yvonne, I'm sorry, Yvonne Cruz, she was age 50, was found in East St. Louis.
1: On October 8th, 2001, the body of Brenda Beasley, 33, was found in East St. Louis. And the FBI was asked to come in and help to investigate because they weren't, they didn't have any leads. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure exactly when they were asked to come in, but somewhere around this time, uh, maybe before, but somewhere around this time. Mm -hmm. um, And they found that common factors, it seems obvious, common factors of the victims included that most of the women were sex workers and drug addicts. They were all black females found nude with ligature marks. The ligature marks found on all of the bodies indicated that the killer was keeping them in bondage for a period of time. All right. So the FBI is on it now.
0: Some had evidence of having been raped with a foreign object while they were still alive. Oh, my God. The FBI believed that the killer was a sexual sadist, someone who gets sexual gratification from the psychological and physical
1: suffering of his victims. And then on January 30th, 2002, uh, an unidentified woman's skeleton was found near Muscuda. On March 11th, 2002, an unidentified woman's skeleton, whoa, was found near Highland. And on March 28th, 2002, an unidentified woman's skeleton was found in Columbia, Illinois. Okay. So, I guess that is it for this week.
0: Um, Tune in next week when we will get into the investigation, how they found him, and what else they found when they did. So, uh, moving along, let's get into our uh, takeaways from this show. Well, I guess I'll start, (laughs) because the document said so. (laughs) Uh, Crack... (laughs) Crack is a hell of a drug. Um, Our prison system and the war on drugs have served no one. Um, I uh, think of a, I thought of a quote from um, Thomas Jefferson and it goes something like um, enslavement or slavery is like uh, holding a wolf by the ears and we can't hold him safely, but we also can't let him go. And I mentioned this earlier that slavery really has not ended. It's simply evolved into the war on drugs over-policing, and mass incarceration. So I say, get rid of the goddamn wolf. (laughs) Um, These (laughs) problems have been treated the same way for so long. And I, I understand that it's hard for people to imagine or wrap your heads around doing it another way. But guess what? There is a better way, and we just have to sort of try it. Figure figure this out, and um, you know, I a couple ideas come to my mind. Like maybe we should legalize sex work, so and, and find ways to make it safer. Legalize drugs and take the money out of the hands of the cartel and decriminalize it. Um, increase mental health treatment. Um, you know, socialized healthcare would it be that bad? (laughs) Consider, um, (laughs) you know, I, I heard, um, the guy who's the creator of the Dilbert cartoon, um, who's like stupid, stinking rich now because of that cartoon. And, um, he has a lot of, he had a lot of, he was on the Adam Carolla show and he had, um, a lot of ideas on how we can sort of just stop treating all these problems the same way. And, um, try them another way. And he had the idea of reparations for black people. This is not my idea, but I am not against it. Uh, but he said, <laughs> you know, we could consider, um, t- making the the top 1%, you know, the, 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 1% percenters, the, the wealthiest in our nation pay for free education and, and legal aid for descendants of American enslaved people. And I was like, Whoa, drop the bomb. That's a good idea. Yeah. So anyway, that is a good um, idea. We should approach these problems differently because it's not working.
1: Yeah, I agree. And people with addictions are just not going to be helped by serving time. Nope. Uh, Simply incarcerating drug addicts is just a bad idea. Mm. Um, There's drugs in prison. They can just continue their uh, addiction. Um, and they don't really learn anything. They don't. Other than how to be better criminals, (laughs) you know? Yeah. 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 All of the money that we spend on incarceration could be used to help them. I mean, of course we need to do something. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Um, Well, well, yes,
0: of course we have to do something, but Put, put, like putting somebody in a
1: cage i i i, I just that's I, not I, it yeah it's that's not, not it. helpful yeah. you know uh f- it's it's complicated, and I yes. don't know all the answers, but yes, I either. definitely think that everything that you mentioned deserves exploring um and other other things too, and there's mm-hmm. got to be a better way than what we are doing now,
0: yeah. Yeah, I, I I agree. And other, I mean, there's there's other successful prison models out there. Um, yeah, I know that countries that are doing it better, countries that are doing it better. I know in one part of the country there's like a farm, so the um the the prisoners um the the incarceration model is different. They're not like in cages all the time. I think they do get to do like fulfilling work, such as. Farming. I'm, uh, don't quote me on that, but there. I, I listened to a podcast called Seventy Million. It's a podcast about prison, the American prison system, and um, they interview a lot of people who are um, trying to change the system. And um, they talked about one prison in the United States, which which has sort of gone away from the traditional keep people in the cage. Um, you know, don't. Let yeah, them work. It's,
1: it's just so so focused on punishing. Yeah. Instead of you know, rehabilitating. I mean, when you're talking about psychopaths, that's, mm-hmm. that's a different story, but drug agree. addicts. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with, with all of those things and it, it you're right. It is a very complex, um, matter, but the good thing is, is that it, uh, we're talking about it. It should be talked about. I think that's how it leads. That's how we get to a solution at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah, but um, so that's how we're doing our part. We definitely don't have the answers, and we're not going to solve it all in one podcast. <laughs> so let's move Although on. We're going to try. <laughs> we're going to try and join us in the conversation. What do you think about um yeah. how we can sort of flip, f- improve um how we treat drug addicts, how we treat um criminals? Um, you know, an election is coming up, so I'm sure this is on a lot of people's minds. So. Uh, tell us what you're thinking on the Facebook group or tweet us or email us or leave us a voicemail. Um, So uh, let's get into how not to get murdered. If you (laughs) love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So this segment is not intended to be victim blaming, we thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, this is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's mistakes. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips.
0: So um, we've done um, a few episodes on um- victims who are sex workers and we've listed resources for sex workers in the past on our show and we'll do it again. Um, but just briefly, um, there is a way to do sex work safely. Um, you know, maybe not a hundred percent and it may not be legal yet, but we can still list some of those resources um, that we found in the past, um, in this show's footnotes, um, things like Checking your client's references before accepting him or her. Um, And then like be really um, cognizant about what you're wearing, like avoid wearing necklaces and scarves to reduce the chances of being choked and, you know, consider your shoes in case you have to run away um, in a pinch. Um, Also by, I believe, um, I believe there is such a thing as safe recreational substance use. Um, However, addiction is very different. It's when it becomes unsafe for you and the people around you. And um, there are many ways to get help there's NA and AA, but I, I don't think that those are the only solutions for people. Um, they um, treat it as a one-size-fits-all, and I don't think that that is um, the case. It works for some, doesn't work for everybody. Um, and not necessarily everybody can get into a nice rehab or, you know, can drop everything and go to a meeting. Um, but um, there, is, there are online um, addiction and recovery communities, um, including private facebook groups for addicts and alcoholics um so if you or somebody you know is struggling with addiction we'll link up to some of those resources in our show notes all right so Let's get into some shout outs. This is the part of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. What do you got for us, Beth?
1: Well, here's me again with the not true crime. <laughs> I just wanted to uh You're give forgiven. a shout-out to the t- Yeah. <laughs> oh, <Lord. laughs> shout out to the TV show Doctor Who. I'm uh, basically a nerd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm a fan of sci-fi and I'm Mm -hmm. an Anglophile. I love UK TV. Um, I just think the quality of their shows is better Mm -hmm. for the most part, although it does seem like we're catching up. Anyway, um, people of color are portrayed a little differently in UK shows. I don't know if it's... Yeah, I don't know if it's... That's my perception anyway. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because slavery was abolished there before it was in the U.S. or because it was abolished without a civil war or what the deal is. But people of color appear, at least in their TV shows, to be more accepted in society. Mm -hmm. Of course, they do have racism there, Mm -hmm. Um, I saw a bandit like Beckham. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole Brexit thing, I think, had ra- racial undertones. undertones. Yeah. Oh, loud tones. Uh, but it's, it's just, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's just, it seems different. Um, it doesn't seem as ingrained as it is in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, back to Doctor Who. Okay. This season, the, the new Doctor is a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's a little hard to explain unless you watch it, but, um, the doctors change every so often they like morph into a different doctor. Yeah. But it's, it's the same doctor, but they like change shape. So, um, and every single doctor in the past has been male. So this is the first female doctor and the doctor always has companions that, Mm -hmm. uh, they travel with. And uh, her companions this season are also very diverse in age, sex, and race. And anyway, it's uh, pretty cool. And it seems like diversity is kind of a theme this season. And the episode last week was about Rosa Parks. Um, They can time travel. So they went back to... uh, 1950s? Yes. So they went back to, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and, uh, the ending actually made me cry. <laughs>
0: Whoa, really?
1: Cause yeah. Cause I'm a big fat sap.
0: <laughs> oh man. Oh, that's pretty cool. Well, yeah, um, I thought it was I, cool. thank you for that shout out and, uh, that recommendation. I, um, didn't, I didn't know any, I don't know anything about Dr. Who, so it's on my radar now. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, um, since this show is centered in St. Louis, I'd like to recommend a podcast called We Live Here, a podcast for people somewhere on the woke spectrum. Um, They take (laughs) deep dives into racism specifically in St. Louis and why the city is the way it is. They discuss white flight, segregation, housing discrimination, and poverty in St. Louis. And um, the hosts are a white guy, I think his name's Tim and a black um, woman, her name's Camille and they're like best friends and they live and work in St. Louis. Um, And um, they love the city. Um, I, I don't know how I feel about St. Louis or if,
1: if I'm like
0: (laughs) super excited to go there um, just based on how, the, the history and how racially polarized it is. Right. But uh, with their work, um, they are trying to expose those issues so that they can be fixed. So, good show. We
1: live here. Nice. So, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is FruitloopsPod.com. Our Facebook page is FruitloopsPod. And our discussion group is FruitloopsPod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, which you can download to your phone, or you can find online at cash.me forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page, which is patron.podbean.com forward slash fruit loops pod. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And all of that is on the website. So you Mm -hmm. don't have to memorize it. Just go to the website. Yeah. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcasts from. All right,
0: everybody, listen close. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there.
1: the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months. As a con man. That is my sister, Emma.